From 1980 to the early 90s, my father owned a video store in a small town in Kentucky. Join us as we take a journey back to that time and explore the films that were released during the home video boom of the 1980s. From holiday-themed horror to Star Wars rip-offs, there were countless trends during this period of cinema as the advent of home video created an entirely new market for both producers of low and high-budget cinema. Many of these films have been forgotten. Many of them are probably best left forgotten, but together we are going to discover the weirdest, campiest, craziest films you've probably never heard of inside my dad's video store. Welcome to the first official episode of my dad's video store. I'll be your host, BC Jones. I'm a filmmaker based here in Los Angeles, but I began my film education and lifelong love affair with cinema from inside the hallowed halls of my father's video store. My dad began his video store business in 1980 and would continue to rent out films for over the next decade. By the time my father shuttered the business in the early 90s, he had accumulated thousands of films covering every genre. Many of the films are little seen today and were even little seen in their time. Joining me on this journey will be two other fellow filmmaker friends who will be subjected to viewing the strange, the disturbing, and the obscure. Without further ado, let's meet my good friends and co-hosts Waylon Bacon and Greg Creasy. Hey guys, how's it going? It's all right. Going well. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thank you both so much for joining me. Waylon, why don't we start with you? Uh, can you tell the listeners, you know, who you are, what you do? Okay, well, I'm a filmmaker, cartoonist, and veteran customer service representative, currently based out of Portland, Oregon. But I lived in Southern California for a while, and that's actually where I met Brad and Gray. Uh, we met at the Comic-Con Film Festival, and they had just screened a, a short film that they'd made called Rite of Passage. It's a W-R-I-T-E, about writer's block, and it was really witty and, uh, and funny and super well shot. Uh, and then, and I was a little bit intimidated, of course. And then uh, they went up to speak, and they were equally witty and funny. And I just went, "Geez, you know, I, I'd like to be these guys' friend." Uh, and luckily for me, they actually reached out to me on Facebook. Well, we loved your film, Waylon. We loved uh, we loved that movie. It was fantastic. Oh, thanks. So, yeah, both it was. Yeah, Gray and I were like completely like oozing over it, like at dinner <laughs> and stuff after after the yes, screen. we were. You're like, man, that what a great movie. It had like all this social commentary and like <laughs> like what a great zombie film. It was fun and hilarious. It was so good. And for our listeners out there, that film is called Help Wanted. That was the film that screened after my film Rite of Passage. Real labor of love. I got all my gray hair making that movie, actually. Dead serious. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, yeah, and when I'm not doing short films, I uh, I also uh, am a cartoonist and I, I work on a webcomic called uh, Frownland. Named after a Captain Beefheart song, although there's there's no relationship between the two things at all. Uh, Frownland's a little bit like uh, American Splendor meets The Far Side. I guess would be sort of my pitch. That's a pretty apt description of, of Frownland. Oh. <laughs> Good. <laughs> Where can folks find some of your uh, comic books and movies? Ah, well, I do have a, a website, WaylonBacon.com, and then of course I've got a. And it's got all my short films on there, and they're also on uh, YouTube and Vimeo. 
And then uh, you can find me on social media. I, I think I'm the only Whalen Bacon floating around out there. Awesome. Well, Gray, can you tell the folks uh, a little bit about yourself? Hey, I'm uh, Gray Creasy. I'm a uh, low-budget filmmaker from uh, Middle Tennessee, now rural Middle Tennessee area. And uh, Brad and I go way back. We're pushing 20 years now. At least. We met in, uh, yeah, at <laughs> least. We met in uh, Nashville. Back in the film school days, and uh, have been friends and evil cohorts ever since. And uh, like, you know, Waylon already explained how we all met. Um, it's interesting, my, my wife actually knew Waylon, or his existence, way before I did. She was a Frownland fan, uh, before I even knew what Frownland was. She had been following the webcomic before we ever met. So small world throws me to no end. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And, um, yeah, I've still been doing the, you know, because I'm either stubborn or stupid. Like we all are. I've still been doing the, the, uh, low budget special effects movie making grind out here in the middle of nowhere. (laughs) It is sheer masochism. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Indeed. (laughs) You have to love it to do, to do this, to make indie independent films. You, you have to completely love it. Uh, to, to put up with it. <laughs> it's, it's one of the most thankless things in the world. Uh, we, I don't know. I think we all love it. I think I could speak for all of us and say that we love making movies. It's, it's fun. It's exciting. It's, it's a pain in the ass. And it's, it's, it's awesome. When it pays off, it pays off big. It's like an abusive relationship. Yeah, it really does. Yeah. <laughs> it's like I get this thing out of my head and then I got to move on to this other thing that's in my head. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, Gray, you just made your first feature film, right? Can you tell uh, can right. you tell folks a little bit about that? Uh, yeah, uh, so it's an expansion of the short film that we made a couple years ago. We wrapped uh, last fall, and we've been in post for about a year, and it's probably going to end up taking about two years for us to finish it, if not longer, because that's the way it goes. <laughs> it was a wild ride, and it's the very definition of... You know, straddling the line between no budget and low budget, we had a eh, about a fifty-six thousand dollar budget for a something that should have been about two hundred and fifty thousand dollars. You know, oh so uh, you know, a learning experience. Big borrow and steal. Yeah, yeah. We're pleased with it so far. We got really lucky to end up having sort of a god in the machine moment when we thought we were going to have to shut down production due to just lack of resources, and then we were able to have one location that had a thousand different micro-locations in it. So it looks like we shot in a bunch of different wonderful locations, but it was all one farm location in uh, in uh, North Nashville. So that saved us. Uh, and it was, uh, you know, a 14-day shoot, just wham bam thank you ma'am nice and what's the what's the name of the film it's called that old misery and it's based on a short film where can people catch it it's at our website now uh that's grim chalice sort of like dark cup that's g-r-i-m-c-h-i-l-i-c-e grimchalice.com it's a great name i love it yes i love the name of your movie too it sounds like an old blues song or something 
Awesome. Exciting. Well, I can't wait to see that. I loved your short, actually. I thought it was extremely disturbing, especially your scene at the beginning, Gray, the one that you're in. Uh, that will haunt me for a long time. So for everyone's awareness, my dad's video store existed before the rise of the chains like Blockbuster and Hollywood Video. Did each of you guys have like a go-to mom and pa video store? You were kind of, you know, you always visited on the weekend. You grabbed like a bunch of movies. And if so, like, what were some of those movies that you discovered in that video store? Oh, yeah. Well, we, I'm lucky because I grew up in, in Berkeley, and Berkeley is like a real cinephile town. And so we actually had a bunch of super cool movie stores, like enough where I could probably talk about one in every episode for the next couple of months. Um, but the one uh, that I remember the most as a kid was called Captain Video because it was probably the first video store that opened in um, Albany, which is like, it's a little suburb right next door to Berkeley. It's kind of like Berkeley Light. But uh, Captain Video was cool because they had a big window display that I had to walk by because it was on the main drag in town. And they always had those giant display posters. And I remember distinctly walking past the They Live poster with the holographic sunglasses and being just terrified every single day because it would turn, you'd see the little skeleton alien in the reflection. Uh, but Captain Video is cool. And I just found out last night that, uh, I mean, because they closed, obviously, like like all the video stores. Or so I thought, apparently, there's actually another Captain Video that's still operating in uh, San Mateo, like across the bay from San Francisco. And the same guy runs it, too. And they still have the the same porn section, apparently, with a little black curtain (laughs) separating it. uh, According to the guy, he said that's like 40% of his sales. (laughs) It's a good way to look at porn without the government tracking you. That's my theory as to why it's still happening. <laughs> and what what were some of the movies that you discovered at uh, Captain Video that you still like, like kind of cherish today? Like the real oddball ones, the ones you would only kind of find in a Ma and Pa video store. You know, nothing super oddball. The posters for a lot of everyone's favorite B movies are embedded in my mind because the cult section was right by the front door, and so I used to go there as a kid because they had all the most lurid box art. And uh, I remember looking at the Toxic Avenger poster a lot. Or the Toxic Avenger uh, slipcase, I guess you'd call mm-hmm. it. The uh, Mondo Trasho, too. Used to kind of freak me out, that early John Waters one. And these are all films that I sought out later when I was old enough. And I went, oh, I remember you know, seeing this at Captain Video. I wonder what this movie's like. Probably the most traumatic was watching The Toxic Avenger because when the Toxic Crusaders cartoon show came out, because if anyone knows, you know, trauma <laughs> somehow was given license to make a, a children's show out of their franchise. <laughs> and... Um, I was the, I was about 10, so I was the perfect age group for it, and I had all the toys, and I talked my mom into renting the Toxic Avenger. I went, oh, mom, this cartoon I've been watching is based on this movie that they had at Captain Video. We should rent it. And the first couple of minutes in, and, of course, a bunch of jocks run over this child on a bicycle twice. <laughs> and, and then I turned the movie off. It was just it was too heavy for a 10-year-old Waylon. That's great. That's so good. I actually, you know, it's funny. My dad had the Toxic Avenger in his video store. But I remember I watched it on, there used to be this thing called USA Up All Night. And it was like these like oh, late yeah, night movies. And they always showed like, you know, surf Nazis must die and a bunch of trauma movies and stuff. And that's that's actually the first time I watched uh, the, the Toxic Avenger just because I wanted to stay up late yep. and, and watch something ridiculous. So. With with Gilbert Godfrey or Rhonda Shear, depending on which era you watched yes. it in. Yeah. Shear. Yeah. Me too. Yeah. I, I watched both <laughs> eras. So. <laughs> so. 
Uh, awesome, great. Uh, so, Gray, what about you? What was like your local video store that you liked to, to hit up, and what were some of the movies that you discovered during that time? So, north of Nashville in uh, the Madison Belshire area, it was Movies to Go. Uh, was the mo- and it was a mom and pop that later had a second location, but there were only ever two. And uh, the best part about them in that time period, being ten to twelve, is they didn't give a rat's ass how old you were. You could rent whatever you wanted, aside from Damn. the porn. Um, but they'd let you in. The, you they weren't too. You could sneak into the porn room. You just couldn't <laughs> rent them. Right. But, uh, yeah. And much like Wayland, when you walked in the front door, the horror and sleaze section was right there. It was on the right as you walked in. It was this little cubby hole that had all the bre- you know. And the movies we're going to talk about today, I remember all the box art. They were all in there except Prison. I don't remember that one, but I remember the rest of them. Great box art. Great box art for Prison. Yeah, it was great. I love that poster. Yeah, that was fantastic. actually still today Beautiful. one of my favorite posters. Beautiful. I love the skull with the, the jail bars yeah. and stuff and the eyes and the glow. It's great. I wonder what came first, prison or death ship? Because they've almost got the same it's poster. It's very similar, concept. yeah. They re- they're really similar. Yeah, you're right. But yeah, so at Movies to Go, one of my favorite memories was the way I'd get around it. My parents weren't prudes, but still, you know, I wasn't brazen enough at 10 or 12 to just go rent. They'd let me rent them, but just watch them at home. So when my parents would be out of town and I'd stay with my grandparents, that's when I'd rent horror movies and take them back to my grandparents' house and just watch them in the living room. And this, as will become apparent later, make ties into our episode today. I rented uh, Nightmare on Elm Street 4, The Dream Master, which, as we know, will tie into prison. <laughs> yes, the great Riddy Harlan. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I rented that and was watching it in the living room of my grandparents' house. And that was 88, so I would have been, yeah, like 11, 12. And my grandmother came in with a pimento cheese sandwich and a glass of milk. And it was during the scene where the girl turns into a cockroach. Awesome. The pimento <laughs> is flying. <laughs> she sets the plate down, look, looks over at the television as the girl's face rips off and the antenna comes out. And, and she just... Looks back at me and says, you want Viena sausages with that? Just <laughs> completely. <laughs> this, woman li- this woman lived through the Great Depression. She's completely unaffected by what she's seeing. And it was just beautiful. So that was, you know, that was my, that was my mom and pop experience. Uh, yeah. That's great. Uh, that's amazing. And just out of curiosity, was that your first, was that your first Nightmare on Elm Street? Was it four? Is that the first one you saw? Four was actually the first one I saw. Yeah. And then after that, it was two. Like, I didn't see the first one until I think I was like 14. Yeah. Like my, my, I I went four, two, one. Yeah. Wow. Nice. Nice. Without further ado, let's get into this week's episode. On this week's episode, we will be exploring a brief trend in the horror genre from the late 80s that featured executed prisoners returning for vengeance. We will discuss four films this week, Prison from 1987, Destroyer from 1988, The Horror Show from 1989, and Wes Craven's Shocker, also from 1989. We will kick things off with our discussion of Rennie Harlan's film Prison from 1987. Another world. We just hanging around this slaughterhouse waiting for our turn. Sir, the power's down all over the prison. Where something is trapped in the dark. Something grab hold of me. Some things just won't stay buried. It's something evil. 
I summon the creature of darkness. It's something inhuman. What's happening in there? And it's waiting for someone. Come forth and show yourself. To open the door. And there is no escape. Not a pleasant place to spend one's life, is Miss Walker. Prison. All right, Prison. Gray, could you give us a brief synopsis of the film? Prison is the uh, first of a uh, sort of glut of uh, capital punishment movies, specifically electrocution movies, revenge films, if you will, that deal with vengeance from beyond the grave uh, of people being put to death in prisons. It's one of the few of these movies that utilized abandoned prisons which is a smart production choice, obviously, and I applaud that. Um, But interestingly, um, what I liked most about it was it was the only one that really delves into the culture of prison. It's almost a prison drama as well as a prison supernatural revenge film. It's the only one that has anything to say about the punitive system and capital punishment really as like a societal issue. You know, all the other movies, they're basically Freddy movies. They're basically like, rah, we're trying to start a slasher franchise. Prison is not. The prison itself is the the villain, really, if you get right down to it. You have your Viggo Mortensen as your lead, who is basically just a car thief, and he's a very respected car thief, but you're like, why is this guy even here? You have Ethan Sharp, the haunted warden, who, the corrupt haunted warden, who's like, you you know, the foil, the bad guy. But the Charlie Forsythe villain, who, with all the other movies, would be sort of your slasher character that, that we'd be following, he's almost an afterthought. His spirit, quote-unquote, is what is haunting the prison, and but that's not even, it's the prison itself. The Charlie Forsythe character is not even delved into. We only find out in the third act who he really even is, as we have the social worker character who digs him up, and we kind of find out who he is. And we don't even see him until, I think, seven seconds at the very end of the movie. Uh, you know, and, it, and, it, and it's Kane Hodder and some weird prosthetics. So, so... Yeah. <laughs> Coming out of the chair. Right. right. So, um, I, you know, me personally, I would have liked... It w- I would have been totally fascinated if the prison itself, if they wouldn't have even had the Charlie Forsyth character, if it would have just been this haunting sort of voodoo-esque energy of the prison that was trying to punish Ethan Sharp for his past crimes, and it didn't even have a human element. One thing that I think they got right in that is in the photographs that you do see of Charlie Forsyth, and it's the only time you see him as a human being, the newspaper photographs of him is clearly Viggo Mortensen's face, sort of like, now we would say photoshopped, but I guess airbrushed back then, onto like a big dude's neck and head. So 
I don't know if you guys noticed this, but oh, I did. Yeah, I noticed it looked like Vigo Mortensen, but I was like, "What? What does that ultimately mean?" Yeah, they don't really go anywhere with it, I, right? I kind of took it that the the living Charlie Forsyth, they did that to sort of insinuate Vigo Mortensen, the car thief in the prison, who's our hero, is sort of like the living re-embodiment of Charlie Forsyth in the prison. Purely metaphorical. Also, I mean, it's also the hot mess of like. A movie trying to say a little more than it can, but but but, but I do respect yeah. what it was trying to say. <laughs> I mean, I also thought that kind of played on you know because we're dealing with the warden as well. Oh yeah, when he first sees you know Vigo Mortensen's character, he's kind of he's kind of taken mm-hmm. aback because it looks just like Forsyth mm-hmm. and 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 Croesus also when he's ha- when he's asleep and Vigo Mortensen wakes him yeah. up, he thinks. It's Charlie Forsyth, the old man. Yeah, so it's weird that our protagonist is also like a ghost yes. in the movie, in a way. He's also kind of haunting all the other, you know, you know, warden and, you know, mm-hmm. security guards and whatnot in, in the prison. Which brings up the uh, a theme that runs through all these movies. It's people being haunted by past sins. Yeah, for sure. Mm, yeah. Uh, what, uh, what were some of your other thoughts about the film Prison Grape? Some specifically other things that tie into other movies later, which is we have a lot of confluence between the bands, Richard Band and Charlie Band, which also ties in later to Horror Show with Stuart Gordon and Mac Alberg. And of course, all the movies we're talking about were within like a three, four year span Mm -hmm. and all in the same genre. But you've got Full Moon before it was Full Moon. You've got all of the same... Empire Pictures all working together. So it's just kind of fascinating that they're all kind of making the same movie, but they're doing different takes on it. I definitely think Prison is the headier of all four of these movies. It's the one that's tackling prison corruption and being, you know, was this Rennie Harlan's first feature? No, he'd done one other feature film. He had made a film, I believe, in Finland. Um, It was a film called Born American, which actually my dad also had that in his video store. It was actually a really impressive action film, but it was a huge bomb because it was like not allowed to play in Finland. What? (laughs) Oh, wow. (laughs) Everybody was like impressed with his directing, and that's how he got this job on prison. Yeah. And it is, I, I I did make a point. I was like, this movie, you know, regardless of any of the, the faults it may have, is beautifully made. I mean, it, it it's it's really well made. It's well crafted. So well crafted. Probably the last point I'll make as, you know, the resident Freddy guy. I'm a huge fan of, of that, you know, for God's sake. Dream Warriors, the song by Dokken, played at my reception at my wedding. So, Oh, my God. <laughs> When sort of the voodoo witchy character guy gets killed in the cell and the, you know, the beam of Charlie Forsythe's light goes through his chest and you can see his beating heart and it blows out the other side. That is exactly the same thing that Alice does to Freddy in Dream Master, another Rennie Harlan movie. It's almost shot for shot the same death, which is gorgeous because it's like, oh, Rennie just remembered this awesome kill that he did in prison and then replicated it for... Yeah. Night on Street 4, which I, I really appreciated. That. <laughs> Why not? It worked. Hardly anyone saw Prison, so let's go for it. <laughs> sure. That's great. Which is a shame, because I thought Prison was great. I was, when I was watching, I'm like, is this good? Because I came onto it after watching Shocker, which I did not uh, think was that good. So we'll get into that later, but... 
You know, prison is actually one of the main reasons I wanted to do this specific episode. It was such a good film. It was a film I used to take to, like, friend sleepovers. You know, know. films like The Hidden and Slumber Party Massacre 2. I had a lot of, like, movies. I was like, you have to see this movie. And prison was definitely one of them. Especially because of the set pieces. The kills yep. in this movie, yep. they're really well done, and they're all pretty memorable. This film had been made, like, a good couple of years and stuff before all these other ones would come out as well. So I, I'm wondering right. if other producers had heard about this idea and were like, oh, that's a good idea. Let's run with that. But I don't really know. I, I actually don't know why all of these films kind of showed up around the same time. It was just a zeitgeist of sorts. Right. Capital Punishment, which had been overturned in the 70s and then brought back by the Supreme Court in the late 70s, that was kind of an ongoing hot-button issue. I knew the Catholic Church had condemned it. This was a pretty hot topic and stuff, so I'm sure that's another reason why we probably, you know, saw this sort of, like, little subgenre film pop up, like, just in a few short years. That makes sense. Yeah, that definitely ties... Yeah, I think that certainly ties into it. And, and, and what I realized is every movie, except for maybe Destroyer, Deals with burning boilers and furnaces bursting open, and there's a lot of burning aspects. So I think all of that, not to bring Freddy into it again, but it's you can't deny it. I mean, specifically horror show, the score, there's points in the score where it's literally just aping the Nightmare on Elm Street score. So I think they're all yeah. trying to do, not prison, mind you. Prison's the standalone that's not trying to, to do this. Yeah. But even prison has burning furnaces but again i think that's just maybe coincidence that rennie harlan went on to make a nightmare on Elm street movie but yeah i think prison's the standout i think prison is like the one like standalone art film out of all of these <laughs> these movies yeah and it, it's totally it's totally very different from all the other films that we're going to discuss mm-hmm. today um the other ones are kind of campy and compared to this one this mm-hmm. one's got a fairly serious tone throughout um, which I kind of appreciated. I think it's and the acting is is pretty elevated in it. I think it actually has a great cast. This film, you know, the, it was actually shot in the in the abandoned prison in Missouri. It was all actually there. And because one thing, my wife and I both, because a thing I noticed, I was like, which one is going to have the best? Because because an execution chamber is like theater in theater. Like, when you're watching it in a movie, you're watching, like, a grongagnol thing happen. It's like a movie within a movie. There's all these people watching an execution, and you're watching the movie of them watching an execution. So we're like, which one is going to present the best theatrical experience? And we were kind of taking bets on which movie was going to have the best execution. Um, Honestly, the most entertaining was Horror Show. Come on. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Entertaining, for sure. (laughs) But, 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 (laughs) right. But which one, but then when we saw the one in prison, we both at the same time, because we're like, you know, not like woo-ha-ha-ha, but we're both kind of capital punishment aficionados. (laughs) I've never heard anyone say that before in my life. (laughs) Little hobby, you know. I want to get in tonight. I'm great about capital punishment. I mean, come on, I think I... (laughs) Hey, yeah. I think... I think I speak for the whole podcast that we're anti-death penalty, but I just mean the his- the history of, of it. But I was like, that's a that's a gas chamber. They just stuck a like a, a, an, a yeah a, an electric. They chair stuck an electric in chair in a, and then we looked it up, and yes, they did use the actual gas chamber from the the abandoned Missouri uh, prison that they shot prison in. 
It looks great, though. It looks so good. It's so claustrophobic. Yeah. That sequence, I, I was, I mean, it's it's almost Hitchcockian how well it's put together. Between, like, you start with the POV shots, mm-hmm. and then it comes in, and then they put the mask on, and then we finally switch the coverage, and, like, it goes into all these tight inserts and sound design, and then you actually see the guy in the chair. It's just, in the... I mean, between the sound design and even, like, the music, everything is just, it's so well put together. It's really nice. Execution scene. All right, Waylon, what were some of your thoughts on the film Prison? I mean, not much different from what you were talking about. I I watched it, and as it went on, I just kept, it was kind of like a series of revelations. Like, oh, I was like, this is well written. Oh, this is well shot. And I was like, oh, these performances are good. And, uh, like, the direction's good. A lot of of B-horror movies have uh, these unearned emotional moments where people were they will overact in a moment that doesn't call for it and prison managed to like keep, you know, it, it knew what it was doing. It was well paced. I was genuinely impressed. Total hidden gem. Um, and it's got a lot of moments that stick with you too. Uh, my favorite was when the, um, oh, I, I, I'm terrible with the names of characters, but uh, when Lincoln uh, killed Patrick, spoiler alert, but he, his, his death scene where he's sitting in the car with the gun aimed at the, at the warden and you realize that he's dead, just like, one of these wonderfully brilliant... Oh, yeah, that was great. With that smile on his face? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, oh, so good. <laughs> and I had no idea that this was the same guy who did Dream Master and Deep Blue Sea and, and uh, Cliffhanger, which I remember watching as a kid. I don't remember anything about Cliffhanger other than the opening scene, but uh, yeah, yeah the prison was awesome. Mm-hmm. So had you never seen Prison before, uh, before this podcast? I didn't see any of these movies before this podcast. This is like, <laughs> I felt like Joel in Mystery Science Theater 3000. I spent all week, and it, it, watching these prison movies, it's been kind of perfect because I, you know, I work in a, in a call center and it's the holidays. So I'm, <laughs> I'm, you know, listening to angry, crazy people all day on the phone. And then I get to, uh, and then I came home and watched angry, crazy people in prison movies. It's a, <laughs> it was an interesting week. I'm a little tired. <laughs> <laughs> been a real blur of insanity it's um which, which might be the ideal headspace to be sitting here talking about all of these uh, all these prison movies do you have any other thoughts about prison what were some of uh were there set pieces that you really like you know i can't think of a specific set piece off the top of my head i just kind of liked the vibe i just liked that it was a it was a slow burn like you guys were saying it does come off like a drama i was thinking this is sort of like shawshank redemption without the uh without the lofty ambitions it was like the the b version which is fine you know, I like that. I respect that about it. Um, I also like that you didn't actually see anything um, truly supernatural until the end. You don't. I, I kept waiting for Kane Hodder to show up, and yeah, he just pops up for a minute there at the very end, kills the warden. But like you guys were saying, it almost—it's almost an afterthought. It's not really the point of that movie. Speaking of the end, what did you guys think about sort of the last act in comparison to like the first two acts in this movie? My one gripe with the film is that it kind of turns into a special effects sort of action movie kind of at the end where like the first two acts, like all the way up basically to the barbed wire scene, mm-hmm. it's just like, it's this really suspenseful horror film. It just wasn't as scary as all the stuff that came before. What did you guys think of the ending of the film? Yeah, I mean, I kind of knew it was going there, um, and, and it pulled it off better than I thought it would. And my concern when I watch any horror movie is I feel like almost every... Nine out of ten horror movies have third act itis, like they can't figure out what to do with the third act, and they just kind of like are like, "Fuck it, let's just go for the action spectacle, or let's just have everyone start doing stupid stuff so we can get to the get to the death scenes faster." So I was 
sort of like, well, I saw this coming and it's better than I thought it would be. Great. what do you think about the last act? I agreed that it was better than I thought it was going to be because I knew it was going to go there, but I was disappointed because the first two acts, just like I said earlier, is what I liked the most. Um, it was so, again, like almost the Charlie Forsyth and the blah, 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 we have to do this felt so incidental. The big action stuff and right, the electricity, blah, 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 felt so incidental and so like, okay, we got to do this. So it was disappointing. I wish I, it could have felt more, mm-hmm. even with the violent kills and the gore, it still felt like a good haunted house movie. It felt like there was probably a way you could have kept that, but I don't expect anybody to be able to do that on their, I don't know, whatever it was, second feature. or I mean, come on, that's asking a lot, <laughs> especially as like your first Hollywood movie. Like, yeah, I mean. Well, also, I thought it kind of like sort of gave us uh, a little precursor for like Riddy Harlan's later career, because ultimately... He wasn't going to stick around in horror very long. No. He was going to do kind of like two films and and then just become one of the biggest right. action directors out there. Speaking of which, why don't we talk a little bit about Rennie Harlan and stuff, just so folks, uh, maybe they're not aware of his career. Um, but Rennie Harlan, he had a really interesting career in Hollywood. He was He is still today the most successful Finnish director in Hollywood history. Um, he started directing commercials in his native country, and then he kind of directed the most expensive film in Finnish history at the time, which was a film called Born American, which we talked about. It flopped because it was banned. He landed this job on prison, which was his first English-speaking film, produced by Erwin Yoblins. Probably a lot of folks in the horror world know Erwin Yoblins because he has a long track record in the genre uh, as he produced the original three Halloween films. Just to name a few, he's a long-term producer. He's produced tons of films. Charles Band was also uh, one of the producers on it as well. Charles Band, I think we should probably do a whole episode on Charles Band at some point. Oh, yes. God, you could do a whole week on Charles Band. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the man has produced like 400-some-odd films, I think, at this point. Uh, yeah, he's, he's got a long, long track record. But after prison, Rennie would go on to direct uh, Nightmare on Elm Street 4, and that would become the highest grossing film in that franchise's history. No shit, really? Yes, yes. It was the big one. And I honestly yeah, think I think it was the big one because Dream Warriors was so good. By the time it had been on video, everybody had seen it and everybody like was just it was Freddy Krueger like mayhem. That's exa- that's exactly what happened because one was a sleeper success. Yes. Two, everybody was disappointed with, and then three, yeah. every, it was after the disappointment of two. Three was huge, so then four, it was like Gonzo. Yeah, Bit, yeah, and so just kind of good timing for Rennie Harlan to be on that film, and then that really shot him into a whole new stratosphere. You know, he started working with producer Joel Silver. He did the Adventures of Four Fairlane. Uh, And Die Hard 2, Die Harder, like, came out in the same year. And then he was actually offered the directing chair for Alien 3, which he dropped out of. And then he kind of worked with a producer named Mario Kasser for a long time. And he's kind of best known for the Rambo films and whatnot. He he made Cliffhanger with him. And also, (laughs) one of the biggest box office bombs of all time still to this day a film called cutthroat island oh no which should not actually turn anyone off from watching cutthroat island cutthroat island's actually kind of a blast it it kind of failed because i believe it was Coralco was kind of going under at the time they weren't able to promote it so it just it hardly made anything but he did that with wife gina davis uh and matthew modine 
He then did The Long Kiss Goodnight with Gina Davis. They divorced shortly after that. So Deep Blue Sea was probably like his last big hit. He certainly had a very varied career, and I think he's mostly known for his action films. The film I love most of his is Prison. It still completely worked the same way it did uh, back in the 80s when I saw it uh, off the shelf at my dad's video store. All right, so Prison. Well, still holds up quite well. So our next film is Destroyer from 1988. The electric chair. To an ordinary man, it's the end. But when serial killer Ivan Mosier sat down, he was just getting warmed up. So what you're telling me is that Mosier's still alive. I'm telling you, Ivan Mosier is half alive. Now he's half the man, twice the animal. Unstoppable, unbelievable, indestructible. Maybe he's like that guy in the Halloweens who keeps getting killed, so he doesn't know if he's dead or just dreaming. Everyone thought he'd just die, but no one ever dreamed he'd become Destroyer, the perfect killing machine. Which, by the way, I just watched, like, this morning. It's a really odd film to watch at at 6 in the morning. (laughs) (laughs) I think that's the best time to watch Destroyer, actually, is at 6 in the morning. Uh, well, speaking of which, Waylon, what since you've you've got fresh eyes on yeah, Destroyer, yeah. what did you think of Destroyer? <laughs> I don't know. It was um, <laughs> it was in, it was. You know what? I liked it more than I thought I would based on the poster. Because when I saw the poster, I was like, oh, God!" Uh, but um, but I put it on and was actually pleasantly surprised. Uh, so the Destroyer is about. Ivan Mosier, a serial killer who's played by Lyle Alzado, who was actually a player for the Los Angeles Raiders uh, before they went back to Oakland and then before they also moved to Las Vegas. Um, anyways, and, you know, the prison's going to execute him, but of course it goes horribly wrong and he breaks free and he goes on a rampage. Uh, this leads to a riot at the prison, which eventually causes the prison to be shut down. And uh, a year later, there's a film crew there and they're shooting a, a B-movie with none other actually than the Anthony Perkins playing the director. Uh, and we find out that Mosier is still alive and he's haunting the prison basement and he uh, begins stalking the film crew and, and he starts killing the crew and it turns into a little bit of like a Phantom of the Opera with less motivation sort of thing as it gets to the end. Um, I couldn't figure <laughs> it great. out. That's Perfect. a great way to put this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's like Phantom of the Opera with less motivation. It's true. I was like, well, wait, he's obsessed because he, he turns out he's really into Susan, who is the, the stunt woman who's also dating uh, David, the screenwriter. And Susan's actually the, the hero of the film, which I like. Boyfriend keeps trying to save her and he just keeps getting clobbered. Yeah. And so she ends up having to do all the heavy lifting herself, which I thought was great. But yeah, we, we never figure out why Ivan is obsessed with her. It, it just complete left field. Yeah. Or how he even knows her last name is Malone. He's constantly going, Malone! And it's like, have you ever even heard her referred to as Malone? <laughs> you know when you watch a movie and you start trying to wonder what pages of the script looked like? Because that whole, the whole third act is David and Ivan both kind of chasing her. David's trying to save Susan and Malone yep. and Ivan wants to kill her. But yeah, they're both, Malone! 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 <laughs> yeah. Malone! <laughs> Ridiculous. Um, I also like to point out, it also has, um, oh my god, what's his name? Uh, there was, one of my favorite characters is the uh, makeup effects guy. Yes. 
who is played by Tobias Anderson, I think it was. No, Tim Jim Turner, who was uh, Randy of the Redwoods. Randy of the Redwoods. <laughs> yes. Yep. I have that on my notes, yep. and you guys got <laughs> to it first. He's <laughs> great. Every scene he's in. I had to look. I had to look it up because I was like, man, that guy looks like Randy of the Redwoods. <laughs> and then I like looked up Jim Turner, and I was like, oh my gosh, this guy has done so much stuff. And for those who do not know out there that is listening to this podcast. Randy of the Redwoods was a character on MTV. He would kind of like show up in between like ad breaks and like he was this stoner hippie guy that would just ramble on some really funny stuff. It went on for like a decade or something it seemed like. They just pop in Randy of the Redwoods. Randy and the Redwoods had had multiple albums, and they did, yeah, MTV interstitials, and actually he's in Nightmare on Elm Street for the Dream Oh my gosh, wow, wow, oh my gosh. This is all tied together. I did not even know that, that's amazing, wow. We've we've come full circle, it's all six degrees of Randy and the Redwoods. (laughs) Someone get a hold of Jim Turner and tell him. Oh, and the character's name is Rewire. Yes, also great. That's the thing about this movie. The cast is much better than the movie there is. Absolutely. Yeah. The cast kind of elevates this movie. Makes it fully enjoyable, Include honestly, including Lyle Alzado. Oh, he's having a blast. Yeah. That execution scene at the beginning is awesome. Oh, yeah. I have a note that I'm like, I, I think it's... It's really creative. I love because, you know, one of the people he kills in the movie is the game show host of the game show that he's obsessed yes. with, which is a, a really fun knockoff of uh, Wheel of Fortune. <laughs> and um, and they do all the show within a sh- movie clips. And he, so he's constantly watching this game show during his execution. And all he cares about is the people won't guess the correct letter. If I could just get him to guess a fucking B. Yeah, B. Yeah, it's 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 hilarious. I love that, and I hate that it's a dream sequence of the screenwriter. Can't we just make that a real scene? I don't even. I don't even think it's a dream sequence of the screenwriter. It seems to be her dream sequence. It, it is. It's Deborah. Oh, and, and also let's point that out. It's also Deborah Foreman, horror royalty. Yeah. Yeah. Anything with Deborah Foreman, I love that she's the, not just the final girl. She's the lead, which is awesome. Like Waylon said. Harris, the screenwriter, is just this dolt who can't do anything. (laughs) Just fumbling around. Yeah, he's absolutely useless. He's totally useless. But probably my absolute favorite scene in the whole movie is in the movie within a movie, because they're, of course, shooting a movie in the prison, is Anthony Perkins shooting a bunch of naked female inmates fighting naked in the shower. That's not the reason it's my favorite scene. The reason is that we then see Mosier, our killer sweating and grunting and wide-eyed, looking through a hole in the wall, watching Anthony Perkins direct a bunch of naked women fighting in the shower. Now, the reason that that's my favorite is the minute I saw that, I imagined Lyle Alzado reading the script for Destroyer and being really excited about this scene. I imagine him reading the script and saying, oh, there's a scene where my character is watching a bunch of naked women fighting each other. Oh, yeah. And then I imagine him getting to set... Because it's clearly just like a B-roll day. He's just looking through some hole in like a plywood wall that they've made look like brick. The, the director's probably not even there. It's probably not even the AD. It's probably like the second unit director. It's, it's just Lyle Alzado like, there's no naked women here. He's probably just looking through a hole in the wall where Anthony Perkins is on the other side like screaming at his oh, agent yes. about how did you get me into this mess. <laughs> <laughs> I'm convinced though. I feel like Perkins was, was definitely channeling 
any number of directors he's worked with. I was like, this is a very credible director performance. Oh, it's entirely believable. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I mean, Perkins is, he's kind of great in everything. I mean, even some of his, you know, this, this period, like, because he also did another film called Edge of Insanity, which is great oh, as that. well. It's kind of a Jekyll and Hyde film. Uh, he did that around the same mm-hmm. time as Destroyer. But it was just me. I wonder if they wrote that scene you're talking about, Gray, because it's, it's Perkins in the shower with a bunch of girls and someone spying in all a psycho where he's spying in before he goes and stabs her in the shower. I kind of was wondering, did they write this scene after they cast Anthony Perkins as like a weird little nod back to, you know, the Hitchcock classic? I hope so. It's pretty obvious, so I would hope so. Speaking of that, Sheriff, what what's he saying, Anthony Perkins, as the director? He keeps saying something like, "You're act- now you're you're actualizing, you're actualizing," or something along those lines. He has like the same <laughs> random bit of direction he keeps yelling at them, which he probably heard from another director, like you said. There's probably some director right. out there that's like that's all they said to Anthony Perkins. He's like, "What the hell does that mean?" <laughs> well, and it reminded me of a story my lovely girlfriend told me about. She was working on a film shoot with a guy who worked on Showgirls. <laughs> And he was telling her that when they were shooting the pool scene with Elizabeth Berkeley and, and uh, Kyle MacLachlan, he was up on a balcony with a with a megaphone going, okay, and you're fucking, and you're fucking, and you're fucking, and cut! <laughs> All night long. <laughs> Basically every scene in Showgirls is... is it's golden. Is gold. I rented that. My friends and I were all so excited that... Uh, you know, we were all of the age where we'd been watching Safe by the Bell and we talked my friend's dad into renting Showgirls for us and we were like... Is this too weird to be sexy? Yes. Is that what's happening right now? Like, wow. One thing, uh, the moment I put this movie on as the credits were rolling that floored me, and this is hyper-specific, but this movie was scored by Patrick O'Hearn. And I was like, no. Because, okay, as I was writing That Old Misery, the feature script, I listened to all types of music. But uh, Patrick O'Hearn is one of my favorites when I get really stressed out. He writes very chill, ambient soundscape type music. He started with uh, Frank Zappa. He was a keyboardist um, way back. And he has multiple really nice soundscape-y type ambient albums. He's really respected. He's been around forever. And he scored destroyer and and i mentioned that to ann elizabeth because i was like no that's it's that guy that you were making fun of me for listening because you were like what is this like smooth vibes <laughs> compilation from like the 90s and i was like i was like no it's it's patrick o'hearn it's the guy i told you i listened to when i want the demons to stop screaming in my head and she was like what like, yeah he scored destroyer that's amazing so- <laughs> and they've got a lot of great people on this deborah foreman and clayton rayner yeah. they're both in another movie together like around the same time as destroyer they're both in april mm-hmm. fool's day oh another one i've never seen i'm totally familiar because of the box art but yeah the box art's classic with the like noose in the hair and stuff yeah, yeah. the knife behind the back yeah interesting it reminds me of a uh, people under the stairs now they've got the same couple from twin peaks playing another couple and I always wondered about that. Indeed, indeed. Oh, man, people under the stairs. So much better than Shocker. So, yes. So many ways. <laughs> there, there are things to love about Shocker, but there are things to not love about Shocker. I actually love the movie within the movie. One of my favorite scenes, actually, is when the actress is just going off and talking to the melted blow-up doll for... You know, it seems like forever. I, yeah. I, I was just, I love that some, the screenwriter was just like, yep, let's put that in. Mm-hmm. So there were so many jokes about the blow up doll. I know. Like right when it landed on set, and then it was like recurring jokes. I loved all of that. Much like Prison, 
once again, it, it turns into the sort of like bonanza of action and all that kind of stuff. The buildup to it was so much better. It's just such a fun, campy movie. The movie doesn't take itself all that seriously, which I really appreciate. From the performances, I really enjoyed... There was the camp level, but then you had people like Perkins. You had uh, the actress playing Fox, the, the, you know, the, the main actress who was supposed to be such a hard person to handle, uh, who was really playing up the camp when she was being the the hard-to-handle actress, but then when she was having her moment with the blow-up doll, was incredibly believable as, like, this, like, broken, like, I can't believe I'm doing this movie, and her breakdown was all really dramatic and believable. So everybody was really selling the bit, you know, whether they were being serious or being campy. Right down to Lyle Alzado. I loved the scene where he had Deborah Foreman strapped to the chair and was sort of taunting her and all up on her. And, yeah, he's going overboard, but... It was also kind of scary and believable, and his big crazy eyes helped, but he kind of toned it down for a minute there and got legitimately scary instead of just laughing and screaming. I just had a great time with everybody's performances. They were really, really giving it their all, and they didn't have to. They didn't have to. The the performances are just, they're much better than I'd say the, the probably movie deserved but it got it of these four films i remember seeing this film like once mm. uh in my dad's video store i didn't i don't think i thought much of it at the time so this was actually of these four films we watched this week this was the pleasant surprise like yeah. was like i didn't think much about this movie i didn't even remember this movie that well and then i was like oh this has got a lot going for it actually yeah apart from prison i enjoyed this the most uh out of the four and it was surprising yeah same and hey man it was more entertaining and less pretentious than that other movie called Destroyer with Nicole Kidman, where it was all about just making her look quote unquote ugly. <laughs> Which, but every time I did, I you know I'm constantly like searching for trivia and information about this movie. That's the movie that always comes up every time. Like that's the top of the search you know window and stuff. Yeah. So, which I haven't seen that film, so I can't I can't it's say anything mediocre. about that. But uh, I've only seen the Lyle Elzato. any other thoughts Waylon do you have any other thoughts about Destroyer it's not really a thought it's an anecdote which is you know when I watch these these cheesy B movies um, it it brings me back to being a kid because on Fridays my dad and I would go to uh, we had actually another cool video store called Curtis's Cult Videos and that was just horror and and cult but but it always makes me feel sleepy when I'm watching these and I could never figure out and some of it has got to be like being a kid and staying up past your bedtime but watching Destroyer, I just nailed down a key component of what makes me feel half awake watching a movie like this, which is the way the, the audio is mixed in these low-budget films. Yeah. <laughs> Interesting. It's like being asleep in your bed while, like, <laughs> as a kid while, like, adults are talking in another room. <laughs> the room tone is so uninterruptive, it's almost like dead silent, and then when people talk, it's like their voices are coming out of nothing. Which makes me feel like I'm half awake in bed listening to people talk, and then it just puts me uh, puts me out. Fascinating. It's got an ASMR quality, I guess. So basically, I'd like to thank Destroyer for solving this mystery I've had for many years, which is why can't I watch B-movies without just wanting to curl up in bed and go to sleep? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a weird trigger. <laughs> Wake up, kids. We're watching Destroyer. No, Dad. Go. Yeah, exactly. And I had a lot of that because my mom cut hair uh, at the house for a living. So I went to sleep and woke up all the time just hearing conversations kind of floating down the house. Well, you know, as a kid, you're really excited to uh, get any attention you can. So it was kind of you always wanted to get out of bed just to like 
walk around the kitchen. Hey, look, I'm the kid. Aren't I interesting? And they, you know, humor you. Look what I did. Look what I drew. All right. Excellent. Well, Destroyer, that was kind of a pleasant surprise, I think, for all of us. All right. So next up, we have the Sean S. Cunningham produced The Horror Show. Come on, Jenky. It's checkout time. Nobody's going to miss Max Janky, especially Detective Lucas McCarthy. Glad you could make it, cop. He was born bad and stayed that way. <laughs> Nobody's going to miss Max Janky. We sent 50,000 volts of juice through that scum. Looks pretty dead to me, Professor. Because he hasn't gone anywhere. Lucas, I'm coming back to tear your world apart. You're dreaming. I thought you were dead. Damn it, Vinny, you scared me. I love you, Vinny. No! I told you I'd be back. If you thought Freddy was a howl... Funny thing happened to me on the way to the studio today. <laughs> and Jason was a scream. I got a present for you. Wait till you meet Max. Not even close. He's a cut above the rest. <laughs> the Horror Show. This is just the beginning. <laughs> All right, uh, let's discuss the horror show, which was also known as House 3 outside of the U.S. The House Films was a quadrilogy of films produced by Sean S. Cunningham in the 80s. They were all standalone films involving a haunted house in some way or another. So, Gray, how would you synopsize the horror show? <laughs> That's a lot to ask. It's really not. The horror show is... Pretty much the the same as uh, a lot of these other films. Brian James <laughs> is a... Actually, I don't know if I can synopsize this one. <laughs> I don't... Fair, it's, fair it, enough. It's very simple. I just have bullet points of jokes. <laughs> and had you seen the horror show before? Had you seen this back in the day? Or was this a first watch? I had. Actually, my only first watches were Prison and Destroyer. I'd seen horror show... I'd seen Shocker like three times, which, God, why had I seen that so many times? But, I, yeah, I'd seen Horror Show once long, long ago. The thing I like most about Horror Show is how weird it is, but it's it, it's incredibly simple. I mean, it's basically just Lance Henriksen, again, as haunted cop who gets ultimatum put on him by child killer he put away, who then becomes a ghost and lives in his furnace in the basement. <laughs> Somehow. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Why the furnace? He's like an electrical ghost. Why did did that strike anybody strange? Like why the furnace? It absolutely struck me strange. And 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 this is a point I made where like so many of these movies are clearly aping the Freddy Krueger thing, but then oddly Craven didn't do it himself until Shocker, which was after all of the other ones. So it's like Craven was like, oh, I guess I should do this myself. <laughs> but yeah. I guess the furnace was just because everybody there's furnace imagery in every one of these movies, except oddly except for I think Destroyer flies into his furnace and lives there, and then slowly builds up power until he can terrorize Lance Henriksen. Because it starts with just Lance Henriksen, yeah, like he's just haunting his dreams. Then it like grows until he's taking on his whole family. 
Maybe the furnace was like an 80s quota. Like, you know, like producers or studio heads would be like, eh, can you add a furnace? I mean, like <laughs> with these horror films, like <laughs> you had to have a furnace. Did everybody have some weird boiler or furnace in their house? Like, I mean, we have one in our house, but it doesn't have flames. It doesn't, it's like a fire. It does it's... And Why it was such a trend in the 80s. Probably, once again, Nightmare on Elm Street, because there's such a significant aspect with the furnace, especially in the first Nightmare on Elm Street, because that's when she reveals all the stuff about Freddy Krueger. She goes to the furnace. Where she's been hiding the glove and the hat, and he was burned alive. And, and so I think they're trying to add that into, along with what you said earlier, the mores of capital punishment being banned and then brought back in the 80s and all late 70s. And then they're like, well, how can we bring Freddy into that? Because that franchise is so damn successful. <laughs> how can we make it roll it all into one? Yep. And you have to bring yep. dreams into it because every single one of these movies, everyone's having nightmares. Some are integral to the plot line and some are just there. But but nightmares are in every single one. Yeah, who knew everybody would be making weird Louis Bunuel films in the 80s? But, you know, here we are. It's just like one dream sequence after another. Market research says, yeah. as Yeah, as cash grab, direct-to-video, or not. Or, you know, or drive-in movies, yeah. <laughs> and, and this one, I think, you know, I think it started out as just a haunted house movie. Uh, I mean, there was, I noticed an Alan Smithy in the credits. But 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 I noticed we have Alan Smithy, and then we have whoever Leslie Bohem is, who's like, hey man, I'm proud of this. Fuck you. You you go ahead and be Alan Smithy. I'm gonna be Leslie Bohem. I'm proud of. Him. I'm. <laughs> I'll give it this. It, it's it's well shot. I was like, this movie looks really good. That's that's Mac Albert. It, it would. Man, okay. I wonder. Yeah, because I was like, this looks great, and and it almost tricked you because then there'd be these moments. Where I'm like, wait, what's happening? Uh, yeah. Strangely, for me, the furnace thing it didn't even. Uh, Throw me off. The, the the one scene where I went, wait, what's happening? Was when the mother presents a turkey that she baked for lunch. And I went, what time did you wake up this morning to make this turkey? You got up at like four in the morning. It's like a whole yeah. turkey. <laughs> yeah. For lunch. <laughs> the dreams, they're like a cash-in for Freddy Krueger. But they don't really make much sense in like the world of the film. It's strange that, like, their dreams, as opposed to, like, it came into his house and then it's a haunted house film. No, it's more like he's haunting their dreams for the most part, but it's also a haunted house because he's also, like, killing the boyfriend yeah. down in the basement. It's this very strange hodgepodge. It's like, well, pick a lane. Are you are you a dream killer or are you a, or are you a ghost haunting a house? Because you could just be the ghost and make the dreams what you're doing. At, it couldn't be, they don't have to be dreams. They can be waking ghost activity you don't it doesn't have to right. be it's like yeah. the dreams had to be there to be part of like the freddy horror franchise knockoff stuff i think some of this was leftover stuff from like when it was originally just another haunted house movie and like they didn't rewrite the whole script yep. they just kind of plugged in the sort of max jinky yep. dream stuff into an existing script and that's why i think it has such a sort of almost incoherent yeah. quality to it i think that's exactly it they were just slapped together like the house franchise was slapped onto a generic serial killer movie and they just kind of like serial killer capital punishment movie because that was what was happening and they just went and but Waylon, like you were saying how beautifully it was shot that was mac mac alberg who shot House 1 and House 2, oh. and he was also the Empire Pictures guy. He shot Reanimator from beyond. Oh, wow. He's 
this brilliant uh, genre DP because Reanimator and From Beyond they're beautifully oh, they're shot. Great. Like he's a gr- he's a great DP. He's awesome. So I think he just this is like the later era. You know, this is 89, 88, 89 at this point. So he's just kind of he's like, well, I do it. I do all these movies that if it involves Charlie Band or Stuart Gordon or Sean Cunningham, I shoot all this shit. So, you know, he also did Ghoulies. Like, he just did everything. I also love that Lawrence Tierney has a teeny tiny cameo in this film. Uh, for those are yes. Tarantino fans out there, Lawrence Tierney is, of course, in Reservoir Dogs. He's like the big bald boss yep. man of the gang of uh, thieves. Yeah, he has a tiny role in this. He's just, he's at the execution. I actually had to stop the movie and and look him up. I'm like, where do I know that guy from? The turkey scene in particular is the most blatant, like, Nightmare on Elm Street kind of ripoff on this. What did you guys think of some of the set pieces in this film? Oh, I love the set pieces. Thank you. Yeah, the turkey scene's like a racer head light, but it's great. Yeah, and that's what I thought of too. I thought of a racer head with the turkey scene, but it was like a combination of a racer head meets Freddy Krueger in a way. I 100% agree. That's what I thought of. And again, but Freddy keeps coming back. And again, to bring it all back to all these movies we're watching, Freddy's head and the pepperoni pizza. From Nightmare on Elm Street 4, The Dream Master, directed by Rennie Harlan. <laughs> it <all> keeps <laughs> yeah. coming back. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I literally, I've got to go watch this movie. So this episode, we should call Six Degrees of Rennie Harlan. <laughs> but I know I loved the turkey scene. That was, I, I, it made me think of young Sherlock Holmes, too, with the living turkey hallucination oh, man. so it, it was just great you know there's another big horror film too that has a profound influence over 80s horror and that's poltergeist especially like these big big lighting things there there's a lot of hmis i'm noticing these big mm-hmm. kind of like cascading yeah. lights coming out of either the furnace or the the voodoo guy in uh prison there's there's a real heavy use of hmis and just the general lighting too i think a lot of that kind of comes from sort of poltergeist too you know there's like let's bring in the wind ritter blow their hair and shoot a big light at them and that's just that's totally you know, Toby Hooper slash Spielberg's poltergeist. I particularly noticed that, yeah, in prison, the catwalk scenes with the lights yeah. as the spirits coming up and the, yeah. the yeah. And all of these prison movies, which I am going to commend every single person who made, particularly the DPs and, and gaffers and every, who made these prison movies, particularly the ones shot in abandoned prisons. Can you imagine on film having to light one of these bitches and the fog and all of that, like the the amount of effort it took, particularly with something like Destroyer or Prison, they were bringing all that in. They didn't have electricity yeah. in these places. The lighting in all of these movies were really impressive. I call it 80s expressionism, like this sort of lighting style in this film. No, there's like yeah. the Venetian blinds and like the interrogation scene. That's like, <laughs> it's very like, almost like a noir homage in a way. Yeah. Uh, but it has that 80s kind of thing to it. But like, mm-hmm. there's one yep. like staple of yep. 80s lighting, and I saw it in a lot of these films. You often put a light behind a fan and the fans turning and casting a shadow. It looks great. <laughs> it looks great. Mm-hmm. It makes no sense. It's like, how often do you see a light behind a fan? Or like, well, that looks cool. Looks good. <laughs> looks good. It looks very cool, though. 
It's funny because I watched Halloween 4 uh, this year for the first time in a while. And I was like, I can tell what era this was made in because of the lighting. And so you've helped explain. I'm like, why do they all do this? Trends. I mean, the trends like nowadays, you notice how like dark. Too dark. Ugh. I can't stand that shit, by the way. <laughs> it drives me bonkers. Like, no, the movie looks like a horror movie, like, right from the get-go. I agree. Right. I really liked uh, the menu, because it was it was shot in a way that looked like more like just an indie film, but there was, like, you know, contrast and, and, and stuff like that. Like, it didn't look like all the other horror movies. Yeah, that had a great look. Absolutely, yeah. I think people should be bolder. Try some different things and stuff. I mean, honestly, The Exorcist is one of the scariest films ever, and it... It doesn't look like anything like that. No. It honestly looks a little more documentary than anything. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's interesting to always look back on the different trends of the time. Because movies, they're of their time. You can't you can't escape it what's going on around you. You get influenced by it. No. Same thing with music. You know what I mean? It's all people get latch onto this weird, like you were talking about earlier, zeitgeist. You know, I don't know why everyone decided to start becoming, you know, punk musicians or why all the jazz guys went bebop in the 40s. It just... <laughs> something in the air. Yeah, there's so many strange music trends. I mean, when I'm telling people that there were like Gregorian chant uh, electro pop in the early 90s, mm-hmm. people would look at me like, what? And I'm like, yeah, it was a thing. I don't know why. It was a huge thing. Uh, <laughs> here we are. I hear that and I just, I really want Crystal Light because that's what I associate that with. <laughs> they have the, the Sail Away song playing during all the Crystal Light commercials. Some, uh, crystal Pepsi. Oh, yeah. You can buy that on eBay. (laughs) Brian James is having the absolute time of his life in this film. Yeah, he's tons of fun to watch. I genuinely was looking forward to him every time he came on. Yeah, he knows it's an insane movie. He just committed committed to it 110%. He's one of the best aspects of the film, I think. What do you guys think of Lance Hendrickson in this? He's often very good in films, but in this one, I thought he looked a little lost in scene. My favorite is like, he's in the dream and he's walking down, I don't know, like a kitchen or something and he just starts punching stuff for no reason. Yeah. And it looks ridiculous. It's like so unmotivated and they're like, yeah, print. Let's go with that. So yeah, the, the doctor scene, the first doctor's office scene. I know, I know. Is like, know. what? <laughs> it's so weird to me. I don't know if it's the editing or what, but they're like staring at each other. There's these awkward pauses, like they're just waiting for the other person to say something. And it's just so off-putting in a way. I know exactly what you're talking about. And I feel like it's a mixture of dodgy editing, but it may not be the editor's fault. It may be. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Right. All you had to work with. I literally think it's a situation where you have a director who's never worked with somebody like Lance Hendrickson. Or worked, period. I think he's a first-time director. I think the original director was fired, and then the effects guy kind of turned into being the director for the film. Well, that makes sense why the effects look so damn good, and like the, right. and the, the performances yeah. are so weird. Okay, yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. Um, it all comes it all crystal comes clear. Together. <laughs> yeah, because it's particularly that dream sequence you're talking about with the punching, because that sticks in my head. I feel like the director was probably like, uh, we'll just, it's Lance Hendrickson. We'll just let him do what he's going to do. Okay, great, we got it, right? Because it's Lance Hendrickson, we got it. He knows what he knows what he's doing. We'll just let him. And I don't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, I don't. I'm a first-time director. Yeah, and then they watch it. They're like, what is this? How am I supposed to put this together now? They almost come off like they're poorly edited. They probably didn't have enough takes to like actually make something better. Uh, what do you guys think about the subplot involving the sun scamming all the different companies to get like lifetime supply of chili? And <laughs> That was so weird. So Goddamn weird. I love that that's what the movie ends on. I loved it, though, because it's a weird 80s cliche right there, actually, the 80s always had some kind of, like, wise-cracking kid and, and like, a like a Hawaiian shirt or something like that. Yes. Like, he was, like, Corey Feldman in the Burbs or, you know. <laughs> yep. it's, it's my favorite part of the movie. Yep. That was the best thing about it. Dude, I was just talking to Amy, and I'm like, did you ever know anyone like that in the 80s? Yeah. She was like, no. I'm like, yeah, me neither. No one did. They, were, they existed yeah. purely in 80s cinema. Like, I don't know how it happened. Yeah, who started that fever dream? Like, there was some director at some point, a writer, who was like, this is, this is a thing. <laughs> Probably trace it back. I mean, there's certainly, like, Gremlins influenced this. Uh, but Goonies, The Lost Boys, The Corys, just in general, like, the combination of all their movies they did together and stuff. Yeah, it just all kind of culminated in this, like, almost a caricature <laughs> and then just got kind of thrown in from film to film. The Corys created some sort of ongoing celluloid golem. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what happened. <laughs> but oh it, but it, it, you're right. It absolutely makes horror show 100 times better than it would have been. <laughs> yeah, it's so odd. I mean, none of it, like, makes sense. I mean, it doesn't even, there's not even, like, a logic, you know, when they actually finally get him out of the dream. Like, they electrocute him in the dream, and then he's out of the dream. Yeah, it, but that's not set up. It's just like, oh, they did that in Nightmare on Elm Street. Yeah, but they set yeah. it up. <laughs> they set it up, and like, there's nothing that sets this up. And right. you're just like... What is happening in this? No. <laughs> Why is this happening? I know. Well, and I I tuned out emotionally, and and when I tuned back in, I was like, "How did they get to the power station?" And I and I started rewinding, and I couldn't figure out how they got there. Yeah, I was like, no. "Is this house behind a power station?" Maybe no, I'm not sure what's going yeah, on. Yeah, I, I don't know. Like somewhere, there's like a dream world around Max Jinky. It's kind of shown at the beginning that involves some kind of long kitchen. <laughs> like a like a restaurant kitchen that's also connected to a power station <laughs> and this is this is his dream world that he lives in and that you you have to go and save your family from i wish they'd really committed to the insanity and if he was going to be in a dream world like that also have a thing where like his hands are lobster claws and you know the the killer is <laughs> eating a chocolate cake which is also his mother yeah, like yeah. If it had been, if it yeah. had been way weirder, I would have appreciated yeah. it. But the dreams are kind of it's in a it's in a factory. There's enough weirdness to set it apart from the glut of everything else that was going on with these kind of movies. But it's just enough to be like, I, uh, you didn't, you didn't even, you, you barely tried. Yeah, you could have gone like you know, and and now we're gonna get to Shocker soon. But that was one of my favorite things. Is at least Shocker at a certain point just goes. This movie's nuts. Let's just go, you know. That's my favorite part of Shocker, is when it 
finally goes, let's just do this. I'm like, why couldn't this be the whole movie? Yeah, that would have been great. (laughs) There's so much to talk about in this film, but there is one scene that does work really well in this movie. That's the execution scene. Oh, man. That scene... It's it's the best best thing in the movie. It's so, (laughs) so good. What does he say in the scene? I'm trying to find my notes here. Oh, I I Um, know it very well. All that did was give me a hard on. Yes, that's it. I'm so so glad you said it because I didn't want to say it. (laughs) Oh, no. By all means, please do. Yeah. Once again, back to the logic. When he's at Max's house and they find the electric chair and he's like, he's been practicing. And all I can think (laughs) is, how the hell did they not catch this guy sooner? Like, if you're practicing with an electric chair, you're like... Probably causing all these electrical disturbances in your neighborhood. <laughs> it's like, would somebody investigate that? You don't practice with an electric chair in your basement. There's so much that doesn't make sense. That actor, he's in. A, he's also a scientist in Prince of Darkness. Oh shit! You're right. He's a physicist in Prince of Darkness. He gets killed by Alice. Yes, Cooper. he's yes. The the bicycle <laughs> scene. If you gotta go, murder. Yeah, if you're gonna go, half a bicycle. I like that. Um, I kept thinking it was Jason Schwartzman. I don't know why, every, but every time it came on, I was like, Jason Schwartzman's in this movie? He looks yeah. a lot like him. He looks He'll a do lot a remake. Like him. <laughs> oh, Jason Schwartzman, yeah. <laughs> uh, I, somehow I don't think anybody's clamoring to remake this film. So Perfect. It's, <laughs> we only should have to endure this for one lifetime. <laughs> All right. Well, any parting thoughts about uh, the horror show before we move on to our last film? All it did was give me a hard off. <laughs> <laughs> and I watched. I think that's a good place to end on. Uh, let's dive into Shocker, which is interesting because there is like a little connection here because Sean S. Cunningham was the producer for the horror show. Sean S. Cunningham produced Wes Craven's very first film, Last House on the Left. Oh my God. A brutal like retelling of The Virgin Spring, the Igmar Bergman film. So yeah, there's a little bit of connective tissue there. The 1989 film, Shocker. We are here today to bear witness to the execution of Horace Pinker, whose unspeakable atrocities have horrified the people of this great state. He stands convicted of 52 counts of aggravated assault, 23 counts of armed robbery, and 37 counts of murder in the first degree. Prisoner, have any final words? Yeah. No more Mr. Nice Guy. I don't think he's dead. Now, Wes Craven brings you his greatest creation. Shocker. Waylon, what did, what did you think of Shocker? Shocker's fascinating. Wes Craven's an interesting director to me because I think Wes Craven is a really smart guy. I know he... he he was an academic before he was a filmmaker, and so all of his movies, yeah. you know, you know he's he's getting at something. Um, you know, he's obviously he's a very progressive guy. He's got all these interesting themes he tries to weave in. So while I was watching Shocker, I was 
constantly thinking, what's what's he going for here? That being said, I do think Shocker is is doesn't really work, which I hate to say. Like I wanted it to work because I like Wes Craven, and it didn't. Um, for anyone who hasn't seen Shocker, the the setup seems simple enough, which is similar to everything else we've talked about, which is a, a serial killer who is electrocuted and becomes a ghost. In this one, he's able to you know travel through electrical currents. It, the road it takes to get there is so strange where it starts off, he's a serial killer and there's a high school football player who gets a concussion and it allows him to suddenly have a psychic connection with the killer. And so luckily this, this football player's dad is a police officer who's, who's looking for the killer. And so the kid convinces his dad to listen to him because he's having dreams that'll point them to the killer. And then they find the killer, but not before the killer also kills Jock's girlfriend who then shows up as a spirit guide to help him on his journey through the rest of the film. And that's all before we even get to the fact that the, the guy gets electrocuted and becomes a ghost. So it's like, it's a kooky film. And like we were talking about earlier, it only really comes alive at the end where there's a protracted scene where the, uh, the, the football player and the serial killer both <laughs> end up inside of a television. And there's a whole montage where they're running through different television scenes. Like they go through a Godzilla film. They go into a cooking show. At some point they show up in like the living room of some kind of like middle America family watching TV and have uh, sort of like a failed attempt at a comedic commentary on, on couch potato culture. It's, it's totally odd. <laughs> so. There's so many ideas in this movie. Yeah. They honestly, it's almost like a bunch of different movies sort of melded together. You have this sort of psychic kind of character, a la, you know, a Stephen King type story. And there's a one point where, like, uh, Horace Pinker is jumping from body to body, a la, like, The Hidden. Yep. One of those bodies is Alice Cooper's uh, guitar player. <laughs> That's a weird well, idea. <laughs> I noticed it because he, um, the producer of the film was uh, a famous music producer. I forget his name. But uh, Mike Myers made a documentary about him. He's kind of a mensch and... Uh, he had a production company that also produced uh, Prince of Darkness, which also has Alice Cooper. So you've got this weird music Cooper connection between these two. Oh, yeah. Actually, I think yeah. I think that was a live films. I think I read something about that. So John Carpenter, I think, had like a couple of films that he was supposed to do for them. But then he, he got out of his contract and he gave those two films to Wes Craven, I think. And that, and Shocker was the one that like slotted in in place of a, a John Carpenter film. Interesting. Oh, that's a shame. Sorry, Wes. Well, John Carpenter, he just he made he made films elsewhere and stuff. He was like, I think he got a better lucrative deal somewhere else, and he wanted to try to get out of the. Ah, uh, okay. So I think that's what the, the deal was. I think like Wes Craven wanted to make this for a very long time. Actually, like had been kind of knocking around in his head, which is strange because it's not good. I mean, it's just no. It's genuinely. I didn't like it. What do you? What did you think of it, Gray? There are there are things about it that I love, but overall, like Waylon said, it absolutely doesn't work. In the third act, when it finds what it's best at, I absolutely love it, and that's when Horace Pinker, which, to be fair, best name out of all the killers of all the movies oh, yeah. you watch. Oh yeah. There's a reason. Yes, there's a reason. There's a band named Horace Pinker. It it it's <laughs> it's, it's it's great. Mitch Pelagi did not know that. Mitch Pelagi's having the best time playing that role, but I love 
fighting each other and John Tesh being like, it seems that, like, it's really <laughs> happening. Like, the community is seeing, they're watching TV yes, and they're seeing watching TV, they're fighting. jumping through the TVs. I yeah. love every bit of that. I feel like this movie should have been about 75 minutes, 80 minutes long. Like, the shortest run for a feature film that you can get away with. And it should have just been that idea. But, that being said, there's so much going on. Shocker was obviously, and I know you say he wanted to make this movie for a long time, like, I don't know, maybe pre-Freddy, but clearly this was, pun very intended, Wes Craven's attempt to capture lightning in a bottle again from Freddy, because that's what this is. There's no there's no getting around it. He's just replacing dreams with going through TV, and by the end, it's, he's just spouting one-liners left and right, just like Freddy did. They're just not funny. Yeah. <laughs> no. I think I, I think I did like, just because of its abs- absolute absurdity, I think I did laugh out loud at the line, uh, this Burke aligner's gonna kill you, son, or whatever it was. It actually made a... <laughs> oh my about, God. about being a Burke aligner, that, which that effect was really great. I was like, damn, that's... Oh, yeah. And it was yeah. so absurd, I loved it. It was like Lynchian almost. I did appreciate throughout weird stuff that Craven put in because like you said Waylon he's a smart guy he knows his stuff um you know it is a Dracula movie at one point I mean our hero's name is Jonathan Parker Jonathan Harker oh, you know his yeah. his his girlfriend gets killed and she comes back as you know he didn't name her Mina but she comes back as this ghostly person there's one scene where she's like I'm so cold you have to hold me I mean it's straight out of Dracula and then you have Horace Pinker when he's jumping body to body he uses them until he drains them till they're dead. That's the whole point. He's Dracula, so there's a whole Dracula section of the movie. So I appreciate that stuff. It's just, what the hell is going on? Until it, it jumps from one thing. To, and why in the hell? I understand that, that Jonathan Parker is Horace Pinker's son. That's revealed later. But why can he... He gets a concussion and he can suddenly start dreaming of Horace Pink. That's never explained. There's a lot of great stuff visually done with it. I mean, from the get-go, like the very first scene where they're walking together and the little children running down the street just oh, disappear so cool. into the street. And the, there's just so much beautiful visual stuff going on in this movie. But it is a hot mess. Uh, <laughs> I almost was like re-editing it in my head. I was like, if I, you know, it'd be fun to just start this movie just with the guy being electrocuted, you know, like all the other movies that we watched right. did, like made that smart call. Yes. It's just, yes. Although, honestly, I like the opening stuff, probably, that's some of my favorite stuff in the film. They're going after the serial killer movie, yeah. and he's like killing the family and all this stuff, yeah. but then it, it just, once again, it took, it took 25 other turns yeah. after that and became, you know... All these other different films. Yeah. It had no business being like two hours and ten minutes long. No. It was too many ideas and too many tonal shifts. I mean, there's like broad comedy going on, especially when they're jumping through the TVs and, and stuff. And again, I love that. But it's like, it belongs in like a different movie. It doesn't, it's like this. Oh yeah, completely. It's a serial killer, like mass murderer, body jumping movie. Why is that in this too? I just think there's so many ideas and they don't quite gel together ultimately. That's the, and that's kind of the issue with the film. I'm not saying there's people, there aren't filmmakers that can't get away with that many tonal shifts, but it, I don't think it's... Oh, possible. Spielberg! Look at Jaws. Yeah. Jaws is a master. Yeah. Go from, like, yeah. comedy yeah. to, like, hard-hitting drama to suspense. Like, that. that's like, I mean, talk about playing the audience like a fiddle. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but yeah, it's hard to do. It's harder to do than sticking with just one tone in a film. 
I'll give Wes Craven the audacity for that, like to try something like this. And he's an interesting filmmaker, Wes. Talk about big hits and big misses. I mean, this is kind of sandwiched in between... He did People Out Under the Stairs, which arguably is maybe my favorite film of his. Yeah. Nightmare on Elm Street is a little bit before this, and Surfing in the Rainbow is right before this as well. Like you were saying, talking about tonal shifts, he gets it with uh, People Under the Stairs. That movie has genuinely like heartfelt yeah. disturbing moments, and then it's also, it's also a hilarious satire. So, And he also does it with, I mean, his one of his first movies. Last House on the Left is uproariously funny, and it's a and it's an exciting, funny hippie road movie, and it's disturbing as hell. Oh my god! Yeah, I actually walked out of that movie. I mean, honestly, I, I always I have mixed emotions about Last House on the Left, and it's because of that. Like every time it cuts to like the police officers and stuff, it's this like wacky comedy. Like the music even changes. It works for me. It worked. And then it cuts back to that, and it was like one of the most grueling, grindhousey horror movies you've ever seen. The first time I saw it, I remember that bothered me about it. I was like, yeah. I was like, I was like, I'd rather it almost just be like totally grueling. Like when it went to that, I was like, wait a minute, what is? Especially it starts out kind of, yeah. uh, you know, with the wacky characters. You're like, wait a minute, what? What is this? This is this is not what I was expecting. And then, of course, uh, it, it moves on to all the true <laughs> horror. I'll say this, uh, Shocker did contribute one super important thing to horror, and that's the the sort of coming out of TVs and, like, the static crawling all over Horace Pinker. Oh, uh, yeah. We'll see this later yeah. in The Ring with Sadako yeah. coming out of the TV and, like, yep. kind of flashing and static on and off. I think this was probably the first film to do that. Yeah. And, you know, Anne Elizabeth, my wife, had never seen it, and she watched it with me and was had a, a loud visceral reaction to those visual effects she was like that looks fucking great and i was like it does i was like it looks a lot better than some of the stuff we had totally when he's coming out of the bodies after he's possessed them i was like that's neat the visual effects in shocker look fantastic like even now and we talked about how mitch pelegi is also um what's his name on the x-files their boss yeah he's their boss which when that happened when he got cast on the x-files i was just like oh it's it's Horace Speaker. It's Horace <laughs> This one was interesting though, because I remember this had like probably the bigger theatrical release of all the all of the films that we've talked about. There was one other film called The First Power that also had like a big theatrical release. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, in terms of this sort of like subgenre, this was like the big release. What do you guys think of Peter Berg in this? Who's who's gone on to having kind of a big directing career himself? Yeah, he's mostly a producer and director now yeah i thought he did uh <laughs> again Anne elizabeth called him uh budget matt dillon <laughs> budget matt dillon i think that's kevin dillon <laughs> oh no right he is yes he is <laughs> yeah she'd never seen him before so uh no i thought i no i thought he did a great job like i, I don't think anyone did a bad job including michael murphy who is his dad who is a uh, a nashville treasure yeah he's, oh he's from nashville yeah, yeah he he's a big patron of the belcourt theater he gives a lot of money there and still comes to see movies here and he's always good he's good in everything he's in peter berg is acting like he's in a much more serious film than this actually is he is very dramatic in like almost all of his scenes because of yep. the tone of some of the scenes around yeah. him also like, sometimes his performance didn't quite go with everything that was kind of happening. I don't think it was his fault. I think it just, I think he just did the best he could with what he had. I think so, because how would 
how could you do otherwise? Yeah, like from that's from heavy his perspective, stuff. I'm in a movie about a serial killer who murdered my girlfriend and my whole family. Like, how could you be like, how could you be like, waka waka? Like, unless you... Unless you're Wes Craven! (laughs) (laughs) Right. A lot of 80s horror movie protagonists kind of have the same sort of performance. It's weird. Like, they're just sort of like the the wide-eyed, earnest white dude. I did, that was just kind of the vibe I got from him. I, I, and I couldn't think of a specific movie to compare his performance to, but I know I'd seen that particular character in, in a number of other 80s cheesy horror films. They're supposed to be sort of like the all-American everyman sort of a thing, but they're they're so normal, it's almost like unrelatable. Yeah. <laughs> Weird. But you're right, Waylon. The leads are so everyman that they're no man. Yeah, they have like no personality. There's like nothing about him that you could point to as a, as a characteristic other than that you know, he's he's psychic and he's traumatized and uh, prone to emotional outbursts, which is more of a result of, like, the directing. No, like, you're really feeling it right now. That was actually one of my big issues with that film is uh, people who had emotional outbursts way too early in the movie. I'd be like, you can't start yelling at, like, the five-minute mark. It's just too soon. <laughs> yeah, not a, he's not a very lived-in character. He's just there to react to what's happening. Yeah, sure, he's like the straight man, except it's not a comedy. There was one thing... Now, I know we're talking about what a hot mess it was, and one a, a key example of this, and one thing that it's like, and I know we can't, there's so many things that could have been done to fix the hot mess, but one thing in particular, I love, love, love the black magic ritual to the television. Oh, yes! Where he gains his powers in the prison. It's so fucking metal and awesome and badass <laughs> and and he's like you got it baby like the static talking to him i'm like this is awesome this i love this so much but you can't just it just comes out of nowhere like you can't even for a movie as bonkers as shocker you can't just throw that in there all that would have taken was in the beginning of the movie which is very much the beginning of nightmare yeah. street one where he's making the glove that's the beginning of shocker where he's walking around his his TV repair studio. That's where you show him doing black magic. That's where you show him like doing ritual shit. Yes. Do it in the beginning oh, yeah. of the movie. Then you get that awesome payoff where he's doing a black magic ritual in the cell. That's all you need. At least it had an explanation. Uh, on, that's like, a good the point. Horror show as correct. To, like, correct. That's know, that's what? why I'm when we ultimately get to that point. Yeah, horror show was my least favorite of all of these. But yeah. But you know, you're right. There's like a lot of good moments that just don't like. Individually, there are scenes I would rewatch on YouTube. They just don't gel as a whole. Like the little girl who he possesses when she's trying to start the uh, start the truck, you know. And she's what she say? Come on, you fucker, move! <laughs> like, that's great. I was like, how much fun did that little girl have playing possessed Horace Pinker? Like you said, these little moments I love. I didn't like the movie overall, but there's so many good little moments. I love the fact that Horace Pinker is so I don't know PTSD related to the fact that he has a limp that even when he jumps into healthy people's bodies he drags that limp along with him he just can't let it go so everybody yep. has that limp but the little girl doing the limp as she's like bouncing along with the- <laughs> yeah. was like the funniest thing <laughs> it is hilarious it also makes zero sense no logical sense why a ghost would also limp. Him having a limp is such a part of his personality that even his ghost can't let it go. (laughs) I always feel bad for filmmakers when that happens because you got to think like every every filmmaker has a point where they go, ah, you know, who's going to notice? But like, and uh, it might be hard to predict like Jurassic Park, it took 20 years before we noticed that the T-Rex comes out of a part of the fence that later is revealed to have no ground whatsoever. Yeah. 
It's the same part of the fence that yeah. Grant slide shimmies down later, but it never. I, it's just so well made, you didn't catch it. You know what I mean? So I, I always feel bad for filmmakers where they were like, "Who's gonna know?" Everybody, everybody. No, we all caught it. And it's not like people are gonna like be talking about it on a podcast twenty years later or something. So, <laughs> right I mean, now, who could predict no, such a thing? Random weird bit of, of shocker trivia. So, and I was talking about Alice uh, Cooper's guitar player as the construction worker that Pinker possesses. And a strange connection to another horror movie. Alice Cooper's guitar player was super ripped, so he was like the sexy axe man. He got ripped with Tim Campello, the sexy sax man from The Lost Boys, as a means of getting free from heroin. They both had the same conclusion that they would just work out and get super buff and stay clean. There's my way of, of tying in Shocker with The Lost Boys. And That's LSP. amazing. Amazing. That's amazing. Also, who wouldn't work out with those two guys? That sounds like fun. And of course, to, to, to bring that... To bring that full square, of course, Alice Cooper recorded the song No More Mr. Nice Guy for Shocker. Oh, that was Megadeth. I wondered. Megadeth covered it for this movie. Yep. Megadeth. That brings me back. And it's the tagline of the movie. This is all. <laughs> right. <laughs> Mr. No nice nice guy. I keep forgetting how many good songs he has. Who, Alice Cooper or Megadeth? Oh, Alice Cooper. Megadeth, I don't remember anything other than just buying it to torture my parents uh, <laughs> buying whatever album they had in the 90s. I don't remember a single Megadeth song, but <laughs> no, Alice Cooper, I don't... I, 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 for some reason, I, I always think of him as a not being like like as someone who's, who's more of a, a shtick, but then I, you look back on his back catalog and you're like, oh my God, like, you know, 18, yeah, no more Mr. Nice Guy, School's Out. It's kind of a ridiculously good oh, back yeah. catalog. He's got a lot of hits. Did you have a favorite execution from any of the four films that we watched? I'm going to actually go with the horror show. The horror show. That was a lot of fun. What about you, Gray? What was your favorite? I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you a two-part answer, oh. if you don't mind. It's because you're um, the capital punishment nut. <laughs> <laughs> My first answer for favorite execution, yeah, it's horror show. I mean, there's just no way around that. That is, uh, that was my favorite execution. It's the most entertaining. It has the one-liner of the entire episode. But my second answer is, uh, and I went into watching all four of these movies, as I was going to say, what has the most accurate electrocution? Oh. Uh, it's definitely not harsh. <laughs> um... <laughs> I counted out anything that had, like, rotoscoped blue light coming out from underneath the, the cap, which was shocker. Sparks, even though that doesn't happen in real life, it's in every one of the movies. So it's going to be a toss-up between Prison and, oddly, Destroyer. Ah. Prison, because they it's the only one of the movies, and I understand why the movies don't have a face mask, because you want to see the actor's face. But in reality, you would have a hood or a mask or something in front of the person's face. So Prison gets it just for that. Otherwise, it's not terribly realistic. Destroyer is the only movie where they wet the head. Now, in Horror Show, mm -hmm. they just sort of dabbed his face with a sponge, which is not... That's completely unrealistic. To be fully realistic, you would put a sponge on the head, mm -hmm. on the top of the head, yeah. and it would stay on the head. But at least in Destroyer, they wetted the head fully. They didn't just go bip bip. So, most accurate, a tie between Destroyer and Prison. Best death, <laughs> horror show. <laughs> I think my favorite execution was actually Destroyer, but for different reasons. It was purely because of how it was made. Like, between the split diopters 
and the sort of juxtaposing yeah. of like mm. the game show, the executors pulling the lever. It's just a yeah. bizarre kind of like sequence, like the way it's put that together. That was great. And honestly, I was like, if the whole movie is like this, holy shit. From a construction standpoint, that's pretty fantastic. That's not to take away from prison, which I actually thought was kind of a flawlessly put together sequence. To me, Destroyer was just so unique. It's certainly the most artistic of all the executions, but it was a hard choice. All four of these movies have pretty fun executions, but yeah, I'd, I'd have to give it to Destroyer. I think Destroyer is just so, it's so unique. It was such a unique kind of film. And you know I love me some split diopters, guys. Oh, uh, you do. I thought of you the minute I saw that split diopter shot. Uh, somewhere Brad <laughs> is really happy. Did you have like a favorite film? From the four that we watched. Oh, Prison, for sure. Mine was a um, a tie between Prison and Destroyer for two very, very, very different reasons. Uh, prison was the most technically pleasing and the mo- and my favorite story-wise and uh, visually and aesthetically. Destroyer, to me, honestly, as Destroyer to me was the most original and the most surprising. And surprising goes a long way for me. I I had the exact same thoughts. Yeah, I think Prison is mm-hmm. definitely the best film overall, but Destroyer yeah. was the biggest surprise of these four films. Like that was the one that I was. It was a real pleasant surprise. I was I was surprised at how much I enjoyed it. I I'd forgotten how great the cast was in the film, and maybe I took I probably took the cast for granted at the time I saw it. It's definitely that's a really fun film. Probably no one talks about. First watch for me. Well, awesome. I'm, I'm glad folks enjoyed that. All right. Next month, we will be discussing the dark side of Disney. Join us as we explore many of the dark, edgy films produced under the Ron Miller regime at Disney, which seems a little off-brand by today's standards. So we're going from death row ghost horror films to Disney films. You guys ready for this? Heck yeah. Yeah. Doesn't sound like much of a jump to me. <laughs> Especially with, uh, like, Return to Oz. Uh, yeah, I'm still talking to my therapist about that one. So, um, yeah, that's... Yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Walter Merch, for that. I used to deliver food to a, a Walt Disney office, so I, I have a lot of extra trauma about seeing Mickey Mouse <laughs> pattern carpeting. <laughs> At least twice a day. Thank you to everyone who tuned in for our first official episode. Uh, please don't forget to follow us wherever you are streaming your podcast. If you want to see any of my film work, uh, please check out my website, uh, C-I-N-E-S-T-E-R.com. That's Sinister.com. And if you want updates on my latest film project, which is called The Red Hourglass, please check out at uh, Red Hourglass Film on Instagram. We hope to see you next time as we take the journey back through my dad's video store. In the meantime, be kind and rewind.
Hey folks, if you liked what you've heard, please don't forget to rate us and follow us so you never miss a discussion. We air a new episode the last Wednesday of every month.